On this episode of China Unscripted, China's spies are everywhere. Their operations are bigger than the CIA and NSA combined. The U.S. government is barely even playing defense. Welcome to China Unscripted. I'm Chris Chappell. And I'm Matt Ganesta. And joining us today is Nicholas Eftimiadis. He's a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and a retired senior intelligence officer specializing in China. Over the past three decades, he's written several books on Chinese spying operations, including his latest book, Chinese Espionage Operations and Tactics. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, all right. So I, I know, uh, let me get ahead of this question. Uh, every country has espionage to some degree or the other. What, what makes the Chinese Communist Party's espionage activities different from America? Well, pretty much all countries do espionage, um, the Vatican included. Uh, really? Against the devil? Uh yeah, I, but they have a good boss, so um, so they they usually they usually find out everything. Um, but China, the CCP in particular, uses what I call whole of society approach to espionage. It's not spy versus spy as it used to be, right? Not the CIA and the KGB and other intelligence services. China incorporates all of society to conduct espionage. In fact, it mandates it through its national intelligence law. So. It's not just the Ministry of State Security or the People's Liberation Army um, General uh, Military Intelligence Department or their Joint um, Joint Intelligence Department now. It is the thousands of people in state-owned enterprises. It is companies. It is academics. It's anyone the CCP calls on and says, we want to know this. And they don't have the right of refusal. So you're dealing with an entire different base of espionage that, to be frank, the United States and, and most other countries are just completely unprepared for. Yeah, one of the things I found really surprising uh, when I read your book is that only 16% of the uh, espionage cases that you had researched originated with the Ministry of State Security, which I guess I think of the MSS as being like the CIA and NSA combined. The spy guys. Yeah. Or and and maybe DIA, which nobody knows about anyway. But like, so MSS is basically all those, but they're only doing less than, you know, one fifth or one sixth of the overall espionage that's the CCP is conducting. Right. It, it depends very much on what we call espionage, right? Economic espionage. They have a very small role in, um, you know, uh, ITAR violations, theft of military technology. Eh, a little more of a role in, but we see a much stronger role by the numbers in, by state-owned enterprises and by um, uh, by the PLA. So it depends exactly which area that you're dealing with. But yeah, that's to, to show you, it's just a phenomenal amount that's engaged, phenomenal number in China that are engaged in, let's use that broad term of espionage. So can you give a, a ballpark number? I mean, I know there's no way to know how many spies China has, right? But like, like ballpark, like what is it compared to say the US? Is it like an order of magnitude more, two orders of magnitude more? Yeah, I, uh, I have to take several orders of magnitude more. Several I mean, orders. Still... So we're talking like hundreds of times, at least hundreds of times more Yeah, the, the US is, the US functions on intelligence agencies and their interests are very narrow. Their national security information plans and intentions. Right. That's what they tend to. Fo that's what they focus on. So China certainly has that, which the Ministry of State Security focuses on. But they're also focusing on technology. They're also focusing on insider um, uh, inside threats, inside uh, secrets, you know, economic secrets, commercial secrets. They focus on a political apparatus and influence operations. The United Front Work Department actually has what we would call case officers. You know, people that actually go overseas, collect in, are, are part of the embassies, collect information, as well as use assets to try and manipulate Chinese local diaspora and political figures. So we see an extraordinary number. I mean, the it's it's you know they're easily going to be over a hundred thousand worldwide doing this. So would you say the difference sort of is is like you know the the, the U.S. would be trying to use espionage to 
find out there's going to be a terrorist attack somewhere in the U.S., whereas China is using espionage to steal intellectual property. That they're trying, they're using espionage for both mm-hmm. to find out where the terrorist attack is going to come from, what the U.S. strategic planning is, what's happening in the you know in the South China Sea, what U.S. naval deployments look like, as well as, and that's the small part of it. The much larger part of it is the intellectual property being developed by companies. You know, the the cutting edge technologies that we are developing. That's the larger part of their effort. Do you have an idea of like how big of an impact that uh, economic espionage has hit the U.S. with? Sure. Well, um, my estimate, and I'll say was the lower estimate, the U.S. government estimates, uh, estimate is higher. Mine is about, let's say, near $400 billion a year, $386 billion a year. $400 billion is lowballing it. Yeah, that's saying. the lowball. The, the, the upper and, that, that, and that's per year. Right, per year, per year. So huh. do the math on that for any number of years. Uh, and yeah, it's, that's, it's, that's, that's, that's more than, than I make in a year. <laughs> Damn right. <laughs> yeah. So it really is big business for them. Well, you know, the, the solution is for America to start doing economic espionage and we can, we can steal the technology of how to make knockoff Homer Simpson slippers. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the problem is it leaves us in a poor position. Defending is very, very tough. Offensively, you know, the United States doesn't have a policy and never has of doing that type of economic espionage. It's not in our interest to do, so we don't do it. So we really are left in a completely defensive position. So it's like if you're playing basketball and the only thing you do is defend, you know, it doesn't matter how good you are. Eventually your opponents are going to score and score and score again. You got to give that basketball player a gun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, so, that's another great option. So how how is this espionage being, this economic espionage, being carried out is, you know, are they airdropping a Chinese spy to sneak into HP laboratories and steal stuff? So there, there's, um, there are a number of different forms of what we call trade craft, which are the espionage techniques that are used. Um, you have, depending on the target, you have different types of trade craft that are employed. Uh, so things like for, to ship out illegal, um, or to ship out military equipment or technology with military applications. They'll use front companies. They'll use moving money through other companies. They don't, they, they try and they pretend are under a cover company to buy for domestic use. Then they ship to a freight forwarding firm, often a place in Germany, Singapore, or something like that before re transshipment to China. Okay. Uh, and there are a lot of telltale signs that, you know, you go into in tradecraft of them, you know, not having financing options or training options or things like that. Right. Because they don't want it. To, to a tale to go back to China. So there are, there are certain types of trade crafts that are employed under those circumstances. When we look at actual insider threats in companies, it's it, interesting that most of the economic espionage, the people who commit it on behalf of China are ethnic Chinese. Uh, they're in their late 40s, perhaps early 50s. And the story you hear a lot is going back to China. So it's not unusual at all for the person to spend 10 to 20 years inside a U.S. company and then decide they're going to move back to China and start, I'll say, feathering the nest, uh, start moving information over, start moving trade secrets over so that they can set up a business inside China. So that is a very, very common pattern of actions that we see. And when you see something like that, you see a lot of communications going back to friends or relatives, to banking systems, to companies in China. So the little um, telltale time, you know, telltale signs, the insider threat community would um, would say. And then still more, we have um, that which occurs in the research or academic world where people have, let's say, one foot between either camp you know, in the United States and in China. And they're making money from China by basically using the same research that they've done in the United States uh, and replicating it in China and training Chinese students and getting lab funded. And you can remember the Lieberman case in uh, in Boston, where he was getting $50,000 a month, I think it was. That was a Harvard professor, I believe. Right, as a Harvard yeah. professor. And that was in China, not declared on taxes. Uh, and in addition to the apartment he was getting and all the treatment he was getting. So we see a lot of that. We call them shadow labs that they create and um, and do in China. 
So lots of different methods depending on the type of um, uh, activity that they're conducting. And so I guess with the Lieberman case, we ha- we have a case where they they got an, an American national to do the work for the Chinese right. Communist Party. It's not just Chinese nationals. Though a, a few years ago, I know there was the, the Trump administration tried to put a, a ban on uh, Chinese students from military-linked universities coming right. to the U.S. and studying in fields related to national security. So I'll tell you a story about that, that that summer, I think it was summer of 2021, when the U.S. government arrested something like four Chinese military researchers who had lied about their military affiliations on the visa form, you know, said they were from civilian universities and such, when they were actually from military universities in China or military institutes, um, the FBI arrested four of them and almost a thousand of them fled the country. Wow. There were another thousand researchers that just got on planes and left immediately, and they were all military affiliated. Wow. So this, the scope really is huge. Yeah. And that's not that, I guess, with those kind of, uh, you know, military researchers, that's that's still not even really touching necessarily the kind of economic espionage. No, it's it's advancing China's military. And I, I mean, the, the point, the crazy part about this is it's not in, um, you know, they're paying full costs on tuition, which the Chinese government is sponsoring. So it's really not in the academic institutions, the U.S. academics institution, to look very, very detailed or look very hard at the person's background. Um, they're, you know, basically getting tremendous access into our research base. So it really is a, a threat to the country. So that well, so that seems to be the clearest sign that something fishy is going on. If somebody can afford full tuition in cash, right? I mean, I, I think one of the things that it's not like, possible. Like you look at Ivy Leagues like Harvard Mm. and they, like most of the American students going there get some kind of uh, help with tuition because they have a need-based system, but they expect foreign nationals to pay full tuition. But they've also been over the last 20 years heavily uh, getting a lot of of mainland Chinese students, right? And I guess the, the sort of official assumption is that they're, there's lots of wealthy people in China because it has so many millionaires now, and those families can just afford to pay the full tuition. There are 377,000 students and scholars, Chinese students and scholars studying in the U.S., 175,000 in Australia, 125,000 or 127,000 in the U.K. If 5% were government or military affiliated, you know, in the United States, you're talking what eighteen thousand? Um, is that correct? Eighteen thousand people. That's in, that's crazy, and in Australia in particular, because Australia has such a small population. Right. Right. I mean, it's only like what twenty, thirty million people or something in the whole country, and so they proportionally have like you know like eight or ten times the number of Chinese students than that the U.S. does. Yes. Correct. So that, because because we had interviewed um, uh, someone from an Australian university who was just basically overwhelmed by threats from like Chinese students, and the University of Queensland was like uh, extremely not only unhelpful but like actually negative towards this Australian guy for raising awareness about human rights because they didn't want to upset their Chinese students. Right, because they're getting money in. Yeah. You know, that's the way it is. Well, so so far we've been talking about the ways, you know, Chinese agents will come to the U.S. to get information. Uh, But like for economic espionage, I imagine a lot of situations are where foreign companies go into China, have to sign, uh, you know, have to enter there as a joint venture with a Chinese company. Uh, Like is most of this economic espionage happening through these joint ventures? Okay, so let's just to be clear, um, let's call that a, a tremendous transfer of technology, but not bona fide espionage, right? It's okay. not something that we would call espionage. However, that said, yeah, China has been renowned in violation of the WTO uh, and any a number of other you know statements that they've made publicly that they have forced technology transfer from Western companies. Uh, it's a very regular practice. It's a hallway conversation in China. In fact, I know one company that um, uh, 
lost their technology and their machining techniques uh, as a Chinese company arose as a competitor after they had been there five years or so. And they did get the opportunity to talk to the, uh, to the Chinese company and actually visit them. And not only was their machinery reproduced, but it was down to the serial numbers on that machinery. Wow. Really? I mean, they actually even copied the serial numbers that were on, uh, you know, on the U.S. firm's machinery. So that type of theft is just pervasive. The fact that the Chinese government requires people to use uh, a Chinese, a government approved VPN is done very, very specifically to allow them access to communications. So the fact that you have to maintain data inside China is all done, you know, so that the Chinese government, the CCP can have access to foreign technology, foreign trade secrets and foreign data. That's so I guess, yeah, the, there was a case with um, American Superconductor Court, what was making the wind turbines. And then they had to, I guess, joint venture with Sinovel and then Sinovel ripped off everything. And now basically all the wind turbines that we have in America are made in China because of this technology transfer, right? In, like, in that case, in, they took their control, um, their software, where they had a, um, a like a 10-year contract for doing the, the software control mechanisms, which is a big part of uh, wind turbines. China stole that. We saw the same thing in the solar power industry where China stole the solar power um, cell manufacturing techniques from the United States. And then the, and then the government subsidized Chinese companies for making it. And we saw the same thing in the steel industry. And the steel industry manufacturing techniques were cyber attack. And all these three, in fact, were prosecuted out of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And they stole, you know, American manufacturing techniques and then, you know, flooded, uh, flooded the market with steel to to destroy the United States capability. In each case, thousands of jobs were lost. Who knew all this green energy would be so red? <laughs> I, I think about this like every time I, I like drive through Palm Springs, you know, and you see like, you know, these like thousands of wind turbines and solar energy and everyone's like, we're so green. But like, actually it's that money being spent on that. A lot of that money is basically going to fund I wonder Chinese though, those companies. specific windmills have been there for a long time. So I don't know specifically where those came from. That, that could be true. Yeah. But so I guess the, the big question with this is, is this just like individual Chinese companies seeing an opportunity or is this being driven by the state, by the Chinese state? Well, the state sets the need and the requirements. And we see that in documents like Made in China 2025. Um, a roadmap for space science and technology to 2050, agricultural roadmap for, you know, to, to 2050. The state at the CCP level, um, working with state council and academia, defines those requirements. And then it basically instructs the state-owned enterprises and the Chinese bureaucracy to go after it. And the companies and the universities, are it's economically prosperous for them to go after that because the Chinese government will pay for it. They can set up industries. They know that's what need, China needs and will pay for to develop its economy. So it's an extraordinary capitalist system of espionage. So let's let's dig into Made in China 2025 a bit. Because I remember when that first came out, it was like 2015. And we did an episode about that. Remember the whole Made in oh, China yeah. 2025 and and then like weirdly, like it got really bad publicity for China. And then they kind of stopped announcing that this was a thing, but they didn't actually stop doing Made in China 2025. They just stopped publicizing that that's what they were doing. Right, right? of course. So so yeah. how much, and so now it's it's been like eight years since they announced it pretty much. And how much of the economic espionage that we're seeing is related to Made in China 2025? Easy to answer, at least for me. Out of these 720 cases that I have listed, 500 of them are directly correlated to specific technologies required in Made in China 2025. Wow. So not all of them. <laughs> <laughs> what are the other ones up to? <laughs> exactly. Well, so what gets me about this is it seems like this is essentially an open secret, and yet you still have foreign companies going into China, signing these joint ventures. Why Why do they keep doing this? Yeah, Elon Musk. 
Um, you know what? I, I, I do have those conversations with companies sometimes. I have the combination, uh, I have the conversation with the uh, security people of companies as well. It's, it, in some senses, there's a lot of profound ignorance on the part of our, of our senior officials. There's a very, uh, our senior company officials, this very American mentality, you know, win win, partner, partner, we're there to share. And uh, they don't understand the perspective of China walking into this. Um, so I'd say that's number one, just the attitude and the approach. Uh, number two is some companies have been quite successful. And up until, you know, up until recently, take Apple as an example. I mean, Apple comes out with a new iPhone every 18 months. So by the time that iPhone is copied, you know, the technology stolen, copied, reproduced, and put out in the Chinese market of, um, of uh, pirated goods, Apple's already announcing, you know, the next iPhone that's coming out. So, you know, they stay ahead of the curve and have for years now. So that's, um, that's another way of addressing it. But if your company does, isn't able to do that, isn't capable of doing that, and I've talked to many, many of them that have lost everything in China uh, because of that. Well, so like, let's, let's take a look at Tesla because uh, Tesla went into China a few years ago. Uh, and then over the last couple of years, we started to see uh, the battery technology being developed by local Chinese companies. And we're starting to see Chinese-made electric vehicles now uh, outselling Teslas in China. So is this... Like, is this espionage? Is this just technology transfer? Like, what's going on here? Well, uh, I'll say again, you know, it's the attitude of the U.S. company going in and uh, understanding what type of environment that they're in. Um, and um, I, I know a little uh, about the Tesla case, but uh, Tesla already had lawsuits and criminal actions against individuals who were working for Xpeng, you know, the Chinese electric car manufacturer who stole, took 20,000 documents on the way out. You know, things like that. So there were already indicators for um, Tesla that this could be a problem. However, Tesla um, makes its technology open. It doesn't really hide it. It makes its technology open as it develops it. So it just believes it's ahead of the curve, uh, ahead of the curve and in name and uh, reputation that it goes in selling its cars, where it's just starting to feel a pinch is now as the Chinese car, um, electric car industry is developing, now we're doing things like, oh, Teslas can't go here and they can't go there because they have cameras and, and collect information and government can't buy Teslas. So the Chinese Communist Party is just starting to turn the screws on Tesla, which will ultimately in years from now force them out of business as the Chinese electric car industry matures and takes over. So what is the U.S. government doing about the fact that essentially China has declared economic warfare on American companies? Um, the U.S. government's response tends to be very, very tactical. So you have a lot of, I'll say, a lot of money flowing, a lot of agencies doing this or doing that and trying to stand up to meet the challenge. But if you ask any senior policy official, say, what's our vision for the relationship with China 10 years from now? I don't know. They, 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 they can't even think in that sense. So we don't approach the problem strategically, moving all the mechanisms of government to be able to address our relationship with China, whether it be countering their espionage or their economic warfare or any other aspect of their military actions. Everything's a very individual um, part of the U.S. response, but there is no strategic part. And, and as you know, China's already declared its strategy you know, up until 2049. So it is a strategic thinker. And and this is in many ways why, ways why we're being outplayed. This is like, you know, the U.S. Congress just had this, this big announcement, like you know, a bipartisan China committee. But if you look at the details of what that bipartisan China committee is going to do, it's not legislative. It's really just investigative. So they're going to, they're going to conduct investigations and they're going to maybe hear testimony, but it's like you said, that's a tactical approach and that's on bar barely tactical there, but it's, it's not strategic because it's not actually addressing the core of the problem and how to change 
that relationship. It's just going to discuss problems little, little that have occurred. Steps, little problems that have addressed this. You know, in the 90s, uh, my first book came out called Chinese Intelligence Operations. And for that, I actually interviewed about nine Ministry of State Security officers and recruited assets. So it was a very big deal at the time. I testified before Congress a number of times. And on the way out, one of the last testimonies, I said, you know, regarding economic espionage, I said, do something about this now. Because if you don't do something about this now, you'll be calling me back in 20 years crying, my God, how did it get this bad? And you know what? It's 25 years later, and that's exactly where we are. But did, did so, they call you back, though? No, <laughs> they didn't. So, I mean, I think I think a lot of the issue is like, because like you said, like, where where do these officials see 10 years from now? And they, and they can't even imagine that because it, it goes back to, we, we talk about this a lot, how uh, uh, like there's this resistance to identify the Chinese Communist Party as a Marxist-Leninist state that considers itself at war with the United States. And so until you can like approach this as, oh, this is actually an enemy that needs to de be defeated. Right. And accept, you, and accept that they're not going to change themselves. Exactly. Yeah. Then you just can't make that goal of like, oh, what is 10 years from now going to be like? We had these same arguments in the 90s. And, um, you know, myself, many other scholars and, uh, and you know, congressional members and things like that, even Nancy Pelosi at the time, uh, were very understanding of the um, – of the nature of the CCP. And ultimately, over time, that sort of got shouted down with this belief that, oh, once they get exposed to money and freedom and capitalism, you know, they're going to be our best buddies. And, and that philosophy has proven wrong. And Xi Jinping surely buried it. Money is the root of all goodness, as they say. Yeah. In the 90s was that key moment, right, where Bill Clinton wanted to, well, he was under a lot of pressure from U.S. companies, right? To, well, there was also lots of shady things going on with Clintons in China. Yeah, oh, that's th that may be true. But even that aside, mm -hmm. right, there was tremendous pressure from Wall Street to open up the China market, get China into the WTO. And I think that, that like, obviously they were wrong about the, you know, making China liberalize, but like, was there any awareness of, like, were companies even thinking about risks of technology transfer, or was that not even like on the radar at the time? No, it wasn't even on the radar. In fact, to this day, it's only half on the radar. Um, I'm surprised how uh, how little under some of the cases that you hear about, um, which I'm not at liberty to actually go into details, but some of the the cases that you hear about where technology was stolen from a, a large U.S. corporation. I mean, the U.S. corporation had absolutely almost nothing in place to protect that technology. I mean, it's still investing in your security, investing in insider threat is, um, is taking money away from the bottom line, right? So people don't want to do that. And you get this, uh, this recurring cycle where the security people are crying that the sky is falling and the senior executives don't want to hear it because adding into that security apparatus reduces the bottom line for companies. So we, we do have this dynamic tension that's in place. Uh, and then the question is, well, what's, you know, the risk? I mean, I've, I've looked at companies that have lost 400 million uh, in research and development to China. And, you know, and they're just, well, do we have to worry about it now that it's out the door? I, I don't know how to answer questions like that. So it's um, so you, you do have those those problems in the business world that have yet to be reconciled, but also like the it's kind of unfair in a certain way because what's happening in China it sounds like is the Chinese Communist Party through the government and through its MSS and through you know this whole society approach is conducting espionage against U.S. corporations. Right, but the U.S.'s approach is not a whole of society defense, even. Right, so like even the basketball metaphor of just being on defense is not enough because it's it's being on defense, but you've only got three players and the other team has twelve hundred. And I'm the guy in the audience with a gun. Yeah, 
You're right. And that's the that's a key point um, that the U.S. is not structured. I mean, our intelligence services, our security services are just not structured to contend with this threat. Um, I train a lot of U.S. government agencies. And what I say is, you know, I'm not really concerned about you folks, because the simple truth is you're going to do what you always do. You're going to circle the wagons, throw a bunch of blankets on top of your secrets and say, yay, we're safe. But for the rest of corporate America, that's the real target of this. They're not safe. And they're the ones that are under siege. And our government is just minimally structured and and adjusting to try and help those, you know, which typically winds up to a once a year FBI briefing. You know, I I could tell you more, but it's classified. Uh, But if you see anything suspicious, call me. Here's my card. And, uh, you know, just the numbers of cases that are ongoing just it's a ridiculous way to approach the problem. I mean, Director Ray of the FBI said that they had one case every 12 hours, a new one that would come up. That's what, 730 cases a year per year, over 56 field offices. Okay. If you were to try and address it through arresting your way out of this, you'd have to increase your agents tenfold. It just isn't possible. The U.S. government has got to do better. Well, I think what's even crazier about the situation is, I mean, besides for American companies being stupid and the U.S. government being stupid, uh, it's not as if these Chinese spies are like these, you know, ultra-trained super soldiers. They're not like Jason Bourne, James Bond. No, no. Like, according to your report, most of them are, are untrained. Yep, they, they are untrained. Sometimes we I, I have what I call pockets of excellence. Sometimes you'll see some very good trade craft, very good training, um, but most times not. Like like what's a stupid example? Um, a stupid <laughs> example is a, um, a one of my favorites, a guy who was uh, an approached American company to try and secure radiation hardened chips, which were ultimately going to go to state owned enterprises and missile and space systems, right? That's why you get radiation-hardened chips. They're about 2700 apiece. This guy was out of England, uh, Liverpool, and he was running a fake company from the address of his restaurant. And But he was in contact with a, with a Chinese government official and was moving money from them to his restaurant or to his fake company. And he came to the United States as he was talking with, the, with one of the three foundries that produce these in the United States. And he said... Um, uh, yeah, well, we want these chips. Well, what are they being used for? Um, radi- uh, radar detectors in cars. Well, you know, our, our other chips at about 60 bucks a piece will be absolutely fine for that. No, no, no. This is the perfect chip. This is what we want at 2700 a piece. So it's just these ridiculous things. And of course, when he came to make the deal, Homeland Security was waiting for him. And uh, as he took it and they had found out he was sending him to his restaurant and his connections with a Chinese government official. They had meetings in Thailand. Uh, you know, the whole scheme was actually revealed when they were all meeting in Thailand. And this is just ridiculous. They sent a guy who didn't know what the chips were for, um, who was paying an astronomical amount, you know, a quarter of a million dollars for chips, you know, for but a ridiculous cover story. So th- those are the kind of stupid situations you can run into. So why would somebody who obviously is untrained and doesn't know what they're doing, want to do that kind of spying for China? Well, there are two reasons that, actually three, that come up. Um, One is serve the motherland. And I've seen a number of cases like that where people want to do it to support China, serve the motherland. Um, Two is in a case like this where it's maybe a one-time deal, the cash benefit, you know, just doing it for the cash. Most often, these types of cases are done uh, to establish a business in China, right? To move either moving back or sending the vaccines back, which we've seen with Pfizer recently, um, to actually start production and start a business in China. So those are the three motivation factors. Well, you know, since since it's been so negative and bad about how stupid the U.S. has been... Can you give us any more stupid Chinese spy stories? I think we need a little more brevity that, you know, maybe maybe we aren't totally screwed. <laughs> well, I mean, these are the ones that we catch. Uh-huh. So, you know what? There's, we, we don't really know what, what, what we, we haven't caught. We don't know what you don't know, in, in other words. 
But um, yeah, there are lots of cases. The guys, the kid who um, walked on a military facility in um, in Florida, whose father was actually with the Ministry of Public Security, taking pictures and saying, "I'm just a tourist." Okay, you know, taking pictures of the radar facilities, but you're just a tourist. Yeah. And, you know, walking right past all the signs that say no trespassing, no walking here, military facility, etc. Ridiculous, um, you know, behavior and cover. Uh, one guy who came actually traveled to New Jersey to buy parts for um, missile systems and literally told the person he was talking to at the time. He didn't know. Came to be an undercover DHS agent. Uh, said, yeah, well, I'm very, very closely associated with the, uh, with, um, you know, uh, state owned enterprise for building missile systems, but don't tell anyone that, okay? All right, yeah. <laughs> He's telling that to the special agent who's undercover, uh, you know, investigating him. Just oh. lots of, lots of stories like that. So I, I was hoping this would make me feel better, but it's actually making me feel worse because if I, if that's the quality we're up against and we're still losing so badly. <laughs> Well, there's a, a saying that's decades old that an FBI agent actually came up with. And he said, if you deal with the Russians, it's what we call the grain of sands theory. And if you deal with the Russians, if the Russians wanted to steal a bucket of sand from the beach, they would send out a sub at night. A bunch of commandos would come out of it on a boat. They'd row into shore. You know, they'd look around. They'd get the bucket of sand. They'd get back on the boat and row, and row back to the sub. China would send 10,000 bathers the next day and everyone would just go home and dust themselves off and they'd collect all the sand. And, and that actually has proven out over time. So it's more of a, a just a mass attack rather than finely honed, sophisticated. But, but, but you know what that says? Like the fact that the Chinese Communist Party is is sending or is basically relying on untrained people, many of whom could be easily caught is basically that the CCP does not care about individuals at all. And I think we know that, but this is just an illustration of like, like they don't care if like this random guy gets caught because he's stupid because they've got, you know, 500 more who are unlikely to get caught. And so, you know, whatever, you a few people get thrown in jail, a few people get arrested, a few people, whatever, not our problem. Right. That's basically the attitude. You know, you're doing it for money or you're doing it for this and that. I appreciate it, but... You know, they have a variety of, of, of avenues to pick from. The MSS officers are generally, when they're involved, are generally under a lot of pressure uh, to sort of collect. So they're like, yeah, oh, okay, he can't do it. Let's get someone else. So they have 10 people in the, in the pipeline at any given time for recruitments and such. So, yeah. So one of the, one of the things you wrote about in your book is how the MSS is using LinkedIn. Right. Uh now, let's say, for example, that uh, I was interested in getting a job, uh, making some extra money on the side by being a, an agent for CCP. How could I, how could I kind of uh, work with my LinkedIn profile and get, get some job offers? Well, you would flag the fact that you have a clearance. Um, you would put up on the top where your picture is open to work. Uh, you would identify your background as having some, and again, you get this right from Made in China 2025 or any of the long-term strategies that you have knowledge in those specific areas that they, you know that they're interested in and, you know, keep a minimal presence, but a very, uh, an, uh, but a non-threatening presence, right? Nothing politically, nothing against CC, you know, against that, um, you know, interested in a job, interested in a job, those types of things, and they'll pick up on you eventually. And so how, how many uh, people has the CCP reached out through to through LinkedIn? Well, the Germans did a study and they came out with a figure of 10,000, Germany. That, that's just in Germany, 10,000. Right, in Germany, including wow. parliamentarians and a number of other people. So um, they, didn't, uh, they didn't get the results on how they understood that targeting or what it was like. And then you start going from there to France, to England, to the United States, and, you know, certainly tens and tens upon thousands. I get approaches all the time. So, but, and okay. So, oh. so like you, you get approached on LinkedIn mm -hmm. and what, like, what kind of, like, what are they saying? Like, what, what kind of offers are you getting? No, no, no. Usually it's just, I, I mean, the offers are very, very identifiable. Uh, it's usually out of a university. 
and they want you to come speak on a specific subject uh, and offer you, you know, offer to pay you to do that. I mean, we've seen that again and again and again happen. So that's when you get to the offer stage. But just being identified, which is the first stage, you, you know, if you're a male, you'll get an approach from a pretty Chinese female uh, in a field that has absolutely nothing to do with you. You know, they're in cement works or something like that out of Shanghai uh, and approaching you just with, just to start contact. In fact, that job of identifying people in the Ministry of State Security is typically done by interns. Or at mm. least I'll say a couple, a few years ago it was done by interns. I'm thinking more and more it's done through artificial intelligence, probably. Probably. I, but years ago it was done by interns. I always thought it was done by beautiful girls working in cement factories. Yeah. <laughs> I have to re-examine my love life. <laughs> uh, I do feel like I want to go back and check my LinkedIn. Yeah, well, well, I I don't have LinkedIn anymore because LinkedIn now requires uh, more layers of identification, which I'm not interested in giving them. Mm. So, uh, but anyway, so but but this sort of LinkedIn recruitment. So they're basically finding people who are uh, have some specialty in a field that's related to Made in China 2025 or another st strategic initiative. Uh, ideally, someone with some kind of intelligence uh, clearance or security clearance. And then they're doing things like they start by approaching them with like a pretty girl who's maybe a robot. Uh, and then they get invited to a, speak at a conference. Okay. But, Depends uh, on the circumstances. So let's take a real life example. A uh, Singaporean kid, Dixon Yo, who was uh, doing his PhD program. Shortly uh, after Dixon or came to the United States, he went back and forth and traveled in Beijing, was presenting papers in Beijing as a young scholar, uh, was putting a lot online, very pro-China in his approach and attitude. His professor, uh, his mentor, Singaporean government boots out of the country for activities, covert activities he shouldn't have been doing, right? So they kick him out of the country. Dixon comes to the United States, so visiting scholar at George Washington University, and there he starts identifying people, you know, who may be of interest to the Chinese government. By that time, he's on the Chinese government hooks. I mean, he's actually traveling to China and they're walking him past um, uh, border control. The MSS is meeting him. He's recruited. He goes on LinkedIn, starts up a company, company with the name of uh, similar to another uh, famous recruiting company. And he starts offering recruiting contracts, contracts for producing papers. He ultimately collects about 400 resumes, all of which have security clearances with the U.S. government, you know, all the details about individuals, and he's sending that back to uh, over to Beijing. Several papers were produced from him, you know, by an Air Force officer, by a couple of other people, and uh, that's usually the start of the recruitment approach. Here's $2,000. Write me a paper on one, two, three. So... He has those people as he's bringing them in. This is what we call the spotting phase and developing, right? He has spotted the right people. Now he's developing a relationship with them, some specific ones on behalf of the MSS, and starting to find out details about their personal life, their finances, um, you know, issues that come on, whether they're able to get employment or not, those types of things. So they're developing them, and then they'll assess whether they can get access to the type of information that the MSS really wants. So it's a very, very actually complex. It's a very, you know, um, a very detailed and complex approach. And everybody is in looking at the target. Okay, the MSS, they're doing open source searches against the individual. In this case, Dixon Yo is um, uh, is uh, is collecting against them, reporting back information on the person's personality, their needs, etc., and paying them as they're bringing them into the fold to conduct espionage. Same thing happened with Kevin Mallory, an ex CIA officer and someone I spent five months with in training. Uh, in uh, in the state world. department, yeah, small world, as they say. Uh, same thing happened with him and 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 others. I mean, so. Like ultimately, they're just Americans who, you know, have a financial situation. They need the money, and they just don't think it's a big deal. Like, is that is that what's going on? Well, they get drawn in. You know, first it's a paper. It's an unclassified paper. Then a second. Then a third. Then the discussions happen, and we can give you a little more if you can be more detailed on areas A, B, C. Um, and before the person knows it, they probably opened up their mouth too much. 
and then going back gets to be more difficult. So they might not even realize right. what they've done until it's too late or until the agents come knocking at their door. In espionage, the whole objective is for the person not to realize it until they're sort of at a point where either they're dependent on your money or that they've given you so much that they really can't um, turn around. Now there's a tremendous threat if they do. So that's the point of the, of the whole espionage game. So could I be a spy and not realize it? We wondered if you were. Hmm. Well, but the, the problem is you're not actually making the money that you should be making as a spy, Chris. I'm just so generous with my time. Yeah, it's a good point. So, I mean, we've, we've talked a lot about like, uh, you know, China's specific, specific interest in like, you know, military, economic uh, technology that they're stealing. But how does this relate to like space exploration? Because that seems to be, you know, that's that's a new field. That's not something where there's like established cheap knockoffs you can make. You can't make the, you know, the cheap knockoff rocket to the moon. Right. What China recognizes <clears throat> and understands is um, <clears throat> that the U.S., particularly U.S. military and such, is highly dependent on space. So, you know, their advances in things, what we call counter space, is an ability to stop the U.S. before there's ever a military issue or a problem, right? If you can poke out the eyes and ears of the United States and they can't control forces, then, then there is no issue. The U.S. doesn't have an ability to, to, to threaten you. So from China's perspective, dominance of space, and to be frank for all nations, you know, all world powers, right? Dominance of space is a huge thing. China has a, uh, what we call a space information corridor under the Belt and Road Initiative, where they offer up space services for countries at very, very inexpensive rates. And the result of which is that they're able to ship all that information back to Beijing. So they actually, over parts of the world, claim information dominance, right? So it doesn't matter if you're in the U.S. embassy talking someplace or if you're on the ground controlling a drone in, in a foreign country or something like that. It's all going through China's space network. If you're one of those countries that's under the Belt and Road Initiative using their space information corridor. So China has democratized space uh, in a way to control information and to have information dominance. Now, for a warfighter or even for, um, for economic reasons, that's an extraordinary ability to have, you know, where you can control, divert, slow down uh, uh, data, you know, move it forward. You, you know what people are thinking before it happens. You know, simply because you control the information flow, which was why 5G was such a big deal. Uh, they've actually communized space, I think. Yeah. So, okay. So basically, the CCP looks at space. Like, what? Like, I still think of space as like rocket ships, um, mainly because when I was a kid and played with Legos, which I definitely don't do as an adult, uh, I always wanted to build rocket ships, right? And so I think of space as like, people cruising around in space and having space battles. But really, like when you're talking about space dominance, you're talking about something else, right? Right. Space is all about information. That's what space is for, for, for nations, for militaries, et cetera. It's all about information. It's about moving information and protecting information and getting it from place to place. Whether you're doing remote sensing and you're taking pictures or spectrally imaging another country or facility or something like that, or whether you're moving communications around the globe. It's all about information. And that's in China, and they've said it in doctrine, that's what they seek to dominate, you know, have information dominance in space. Now, in order to do that, you have to be able to protect your assets as well, right? So there's that component to it. But the end goal is information dominance, you know, as they say, in, through, and to space. A kind of Skynet, if you will. Yeah. Exactly. Good way to think about it. Uh, so, because what what they want to do in space is kind of like um, what's what's Elon Musk's company that has SpaceX. The, SpaceX. No, but at, not SpaceX, but like the the satellite link thing, where oh, you have um, Starlink. No, Starlink. Starlink. Yeah. So you can be now anywhere in the world and connect to the internet through Starlink, right? Right. 
And what is the CCP doing with respect to that concept? Uh, well, Elon Musk, in a way you could say shellacked him uh, because he came out with Starlink and he pushed forward a, um, a concept of using these satellites in Le what we call LEO, low Earth orbit, right? Uh, very easy to put up. You can put up 50, 60 at a time. Uh, and because the technology is so developed now, uh, these things can do phenomenal things. Great on Leon. So what he does is he opens up an entire world, middle of Africa, Latin America, all the emerging nations, China, Asia. He opens up to being able to get communications, being able to do phenomenal things in moving data around, but they were never opened up before. Right. So this is what happens with um, Starlink and any number of other commercial small sat space companies. China is actually behind on this. They're, they're, they're way behind and they're trying desperately now to catch up because this is sort of the control of space that can go and look at the difference it's made in the Ukraine war. Musk gives out thousands of terminals and, you know, the Russians are getting pounded because of it. They tried jamming it and they're unsuccessful at it. So this is where the future of space is going, where the future of space security is going. And, and China's still not a player on this. And I guess I could see a scenario if Musk were to not care about his Chinese investments, where if there was another, you know, nationwide mass protest movement in China, the Chinese government tries to nix the Internet, Musk could put Starlink in that area and then people have access to the Internet. Right. And that, that worries governments all over. Surely not the U.S. government, who is completely benevolent and has no ill intentions. Yeah. Anything out of any government's control is always a worry. So with the CCP doing all this espionage, you know, I know a lot of it's in the U.S. and, you know, most of that is in Silicon Valley. But what about Taiwan? So out of the bona fide espionage cases I have, which are probably, I don't know, 120 espionage, espionage cases. Like James Bond kind of stuff? Like like uh, like military, you know, um, plans, intentions, political information, things like that. Um, out of those, fully worldwide, fully half of them are Taiwan. Wow, that's a huge portion. Right. So when you start talking numbers, like you know, you're talking 700 other cases and 120, whatever it is, half of those being Taiwan. That's a big number. Okay, so I imagine it's much. In some ways, it's harder, and in some ways, it's easier for the Taiwan government to to deal with this. So how is Taiwan dealing with it? Um, better than they were. Uh, you know, the, the, the court still will sentence a person to a year in jail for espionage. Um, it's not a very, very serious crime in, in Taiwan. Uh, however, you know, I, I'm a little older, so I can remember going through many years where Taiwan prosecuted no one. Nobody for espionage. It went five, six, seven, eight, nine years and no one was prosecuted, you know, in Taiwan for espionage. So it's just in the last five years or so, five, six, seven years that they've started prosecuting again and bringing people to, you know, and taking it as a serious problem. Right. But that's still tactical, like the, what the U.S. is doing. Is it, it is. It is. Is, um, is Taiwan being strategic about it? Uh, yeah, that's a very good question. And I can't tell you, I can give you an honest answer that I know. Um, they are more aware of strategy and more, and I, and I think more inclined to apply it in a strategic response. Uh, but they have problems within their own ranks, right? There, there's no real decision on what the relationship with China should be. So that, that, that's a problem that affects them at their core. But as strategy goes, I'll tell you, they're very, they've told us a few times, you've got to understand China's strategy on this. They're very, very good about that. They really understand that. So, you know, I, I expect there's a, a pretty high likelihood that the CCP will attempt an invasion in the next decade. Are, how are they using espionage to prepare for that invasion? Or, you know, if they get really fortunate, it's just a total surrender. Well, I, I, I always say when I'm asked that question, what do you mean by invasion? Because the, the U.S. perspective is always putting iron on target, right? Um, that it's going to be a military invasion. And were I China, I would be relentless in cyber attacks for the next 10 years. 
I put half my military into conducting cyber attacks to bring Taiwan to its knees economically. I would be have a trade war where I'd, every other country that was dealing with Taiwan, I'd put the thumbscrews just like they've done with Lithuania. I, I, I'd apply that to every country that was dealing with Taiwan, and I'd soften them up for a year to see how that goes. A, a, a military conflict might not even be necessary, and it's certainly not in, in China's interest to do, particularly if there's a, pro, a, 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 a an idea that they could lose a lot of people or that they could lose it, you know, lose the conflict itself, because that means the end of the CCP. So I, I think it depends on how they actually apply it. Yeah, because recently uh, there were those war games where it looked like like ultimately Taiwan pulled through, although at a very high cost to both sides. But in particular, China losing, you know, 10,000 troops and losing like most of its naval fleet and basically weakening the CCP. Right. But I mean, that war games was a, you know, boots on the ground type invasion war games. Uh, are, are there things being are there war games that are not boots on the ground war games that are actually looking into this kind of cyber economic, cyber economic whole of society um, approach. Good question. I, I actually thought of putting that together at one time, um, you know, bringing Wall Street into it, bringing cyber, you know, folks into it, understand, bringing members of Congress and understanding what the U.S. and allies, what in a whole of nation approach, what capabilities you could bring to the table to respond to that. It's the war game that hasn't happened, but it really should. That should be the annual the annual effort to do. So how do you make that happen? Um, you don't make it happen in a government that is tactical and doesn't think strategic at the approach. Um, you potentially uh, do it through a university. You potentially could do it you know, uh, through a think tank. You could do it through a, a number of other ways. To be able to 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 do that, but I really think it's a it's it's something that's been on my plate for a while, but it's something that absolutely should be done. Well, so then I guess this brings us to what can what can Amer America as a whole do, and what can individuals do? Well, if you're a company, um, first off, the the individuals look being in in touch with members of Congress with your elected representatives really does work. If so much else in this country doesn't work, that actually does. So when people write into a member of Congress about something, they assume it's like 70 other people feel that way about the particular issue. And when they write in about their concerns about China, that really gets Congress motivated to move forward in a direction, number one. Number two, education. Uh, education is, is everything in this environment because companies don't know. I mean, half the time government doesn't know the type of threats that it faces. So um, education is a very, very big deal uh, for companies and, and, and governments. And at, as you know, I, I won't pitch myself here, but that's, that's an area that I really focus very hard on um, in educating companies and educating governments in exactly the type of threat that, um, that uh, comes at them. So I would say that. You, know, well, be, you have a well, new course, right? I do. I do. I have a um, the world's first uh, online course on Chinese espionage. It's a 12-hour self-paced online course, and it gives all the details about um, exactly how China's conducting its espionage activities, how it conducts covert influence campaigns, and uh, how it conducts economic espionage. So it's very detailed for, for, for professionals, but I think anyone with a strong interest will really get a lot out of it. Cool. We'll, we'll definitely put a link to that below for anyone watching who's interested. But uh, but yeah, like what else as a whole society approach? As like a, as like a viewer of the show, like what, you know, besides taking the course, I mean, like what could a, a typical viewer do? Well, as I said, typical viewer can express their, um, express their concerns, not only to their, you know, first to educate yourself a little on the issue, right? So, you know, like we have discussed today, how much is lost, you know, nearly, you know, um, 400 billion a year to, uh, you know, Chinese theft of intellectual property, you know, educate yourselves just a little on the issue and then push this at a state level because states like Florida and Maryland and others have just come out with laws on trying to abate China's theft of technology. 
you know, Chinese espionage. They've actually pushed this at state levels, which is long overdue. Uh, I would say push this in the university environment for anyone in the university environment. I hope a lot of uh, uh, students see this. It's an opportunity to educate yourself and to understand uh, the, the pressures and the influences that are on universities and think tanks. Uh, so there's, you know, leveraging strengths at the um, at the state level, leveraging strengths at the congressional level, uh, educating yourself so you're able to do this. I mean, it just takes a simple email. You know, once you have to express your concerns and interests. And if you're in one of the many thousands in the uh, um, law enforcement or um, or insider threat or security field, uh, this is an issue of being vigilant and understanding that that is, a, you know, that is a primary threat today that's facing you. I mean, the military knows this. We act as, I've actually heard in the Pentagon, the norm statement is it's China all day, every day. So that body, taking them two decades to get here, but but even after during 9-11 and you know and and the and the focus that we've had on terrorism since, that body is coming to understand that this nation state poses a considerable threat to the United States. So I, I think people are starting to come to that side and that understanding. And of course, watching your show, what a way to educate oneself. I, I agree. More people should watch the show for longer periods of time. Cost you absolutely nothing to be in the fifty cent army. You know, you're not going to take it with you, right? Okay? Period. I mean, you're the expert, so you know people should follow what you say. I am getting people to jump over the divide to actually do something is probably the biggest problem, right? You know, they don't believe that writing a, a letter to their congressman or senator is going to do anything, but it does. They don't believe that educating themselves that they can make a difference, but they actually really can. And, and, and it's important that they just believe that and understand it and try and move forward with it. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. Like if the people in like the, the top levels of these corporations or in government knew that China was a Marxist Leninist state that was the enemy of the U.S., they would, you, these people watching us would make different decisions. So that is a way to get things done. We have to take back society. Right. Yeah, that's exactly it. You have to be an activist on this. And if, you know, a thousand people are writing to company XYZ and saying, you know what, I'm not really thrilled about the fact that you're, you know, not addressing any of the human rights issues in China and that you're ignoring them, you know, so I can get my 69 cent piece of plastic. I, I got it. But, um, but there's some things that are important that really need to be addressed. And it's your obligation to have that social responsibility as a company to do that. I feel very important about that. I feel very, you know, that that's very important. You need to do that. I mean, if you can get hundreds of people to write to just one company, you would change the nature and the direction of that company. But it's getting people off the dime. And so I hope every one of your viewers will, will come out with a different attitude and activist attitude on what to do about this problem. Yeah, maybe we could figure out some way to lead that. You know, have some specific initiatives for people to do. That's a great idea. Yeah, let's keep that in the back of our minds. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I hope after you know after twenty years, uh, a lot more people will come running to you crying. <laughs> <laughs> Not sure how to feel about that, but thank you very much. I appreciate it, and thank you for what you do. It's extraordinary the difference that you're making. I, I, I'm actually just overwhelmed. It really is amazing watching one person make such such a sorry, multiple people make so much. Well, how, how I, yeah, benevolently have sacrificed and bled <laughs> with my sweat and tears. The good of mankind, alone, by myself. Well, yeah. and you know, having great guests like you on. But Thank outside you. of that, that's the day. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Are you crying, Matt? <laughs> I'm not crying. You're crying. <laughs> yeah, it's been great having you on. Thank you so much. Thank you. Oh, I mean, I guess I, I guess we forgot to say at the beginning, speaking of me being the only person who's of any significance on this show, uh, Shelly was not able to join us today. I suspect... Because she's been a spy all along. 
it is uh, not impossible. It's it's right. Yeah, and she's she's covered it really well by refusing to say the dirty reds. Exactly what a dirty red would say. Exactly. My gosh, we've cracked the code. Mm-hmm. So how do you feel about all this? Uh, you know, knowing that America is losing nearly four hundred billion dollars a year to Chinese espionage, and that most of it's being done through relatively incompetent people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was that was a big surprise. Um, yeah, that the spies are not actually very capable. Uh, but no, I mean, it's I'm not that surprised because you know we've been doing the show for so long. It's just it's just the continued frustration of just the decades of people being like. Eh, is this really a problem? Is it really my problem? Yeah, just the the apathy. It's it's pretty crazy, right? And then you know, buying your plastic thing at, for sixty nine cents at the store that's yeah, made in China. When like, if you were willing to pay seventy nine cents, yeah, you could get something made not in China. I mean, and maybe for for eighty nine cents to be made in America, and just also like how it's kind of like deaths by a thousand cuts. Like for the for these, a thousand grains of sand picked up at the beach. No, no, that's that's not the saying. Uh, no, it's it's like you know th- these people like don't necessarily like even see themselves as spies. They just do a little bit here, a little bit there, and then suddenly they're in over their head. It really reminds me of uh, Londa Malari in Babylon Five, and how you know he got a little bit of help from the shadows, then a little bit more, and suddenly he's responsible for genocide. Wow. It could happen to anyone. Yeah, or like, you know, Anakin Skywalker. Like, he just wants... Who? (laughs) I'm making very well-known references to Babylon 5, and you're talking about some some cloud man walker? What? Yeah, he just just wanted a little bit of learning from the dark side to learn how to bring back someone from the dead. He just wanted a mom. He just wanted his mom back. That's all he wanted. Yeah. Ah, oh, it's so easy to turn to the dark side. Ah, uh, so this is what happens when Shelly isn't here to keep us on the rails. I don't, I don't know if she'd keep us on the rails here. Well, it's, it's, we always go off the rails, but without her, I feel like we're just flying into the void. Better than screaming into the void. That's true. Uh, thank you for watching. Be sure to check out Babylon 5. I'm Chris Chappell. And I'm Matt Ganesta. We'll talk to you next time.